You're listening to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of Yahweh and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of Yahweh. Solomon loved Yahweh, walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, Yahweh appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love, and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Yahweh my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in, and your servant is in the midst of your people, whom you have chosen a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? It pleased Yahweh that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, Because you have asked this, and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Then he came to Jerusalem, and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord, and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings, and made a feast for all his servants. Then two prostitutes came to the king, and stood before him. The one woman said, O my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house, and I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. Then on the third day after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth, and we were alone. There was no one else with us in the house, only we two were in the house. And this woman's son died in the night, because she lay on him. And she arose at midnight, and took my son from beside me, while your servant slept, and laid him at her breast, and laid her dead son at my breast. When I rose in the morning to nurse my child, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning, behold, he was not the child that I had borne. But the other woman said, No, the living child is mine, and the dead child is yours. The first said, No, the dead child is yours, and the living child is mine. Thus they spoke before the king. Then the king said, 
The one says, This is my son that is alive, and your son is dead. And the other says, No, but your son is dead, and my son is the living one. And the king said, Bring me a sword. So a sword was brought before the king. And the king said, Divide the living child in two, and give half to the one and half to the other. Then the woman, whose son was alive, said to the king, Because her heart yearned for her son, O my lord, give her the living child, and by no means put him to death. But the other said, He shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. Then the king answered and said, Give the living child to the first woman, and by no means put him to death. She is his mother. And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king, because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 777 of this podcast. You've hit the jackpot. I'm glad you're here and you just happen to be hitting this podcast at the right time because Solomon is king in the biblical text. We're going to talk about his prayer for wisdom and his demonstration of the wisdom that God gives to Solomon. We're going to talk about that in this podcast episode. I'm really excited. I find this a fascinating, fascinating chapter. And why don't we just camp out in this chapter for the whole episode? How about it's my podcast. I can do that if I want to. And hopefully you will enjoy it. I think you'll enjoy it. I'm going to enjoy it. And that'll be infectious. You'll enjoy it because I'm enjoying it. That's the way it works, I'm pretty sure. But it was 1 Kings chapter 3 that we read just now. Solomon is dreaming. And in his dream, because he loves Yahweh and because David, his father, had a covenant established by God that his descendant would sit on the throne forever, Solomon is asked by God what it is that God will give him. Ask what I shall give you. Verse 5, Solomon says very humbly, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart towards you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Yahweh, my God, You have made your servant king in place of David, my father. And so just pause for a moment to appreciate the setup here. That's how Solomon begins. He's just processing still. He's overwhelmed and there's a humility in relation to God. There's also a humility and an honor in relation to his father. He is not an entitled jerk. Adonijah? Never was questioned by his father, it said, 
His father never asked him about something. Why are you doing what you're doing? And so his father didn't discipline him, it seems, didn't correct him, didn't chide him, didn't tell him, nope, not that, this instead. But Solomon, somehow, some way, whether from his father or from his mother, but probably both, has learned to honor his father and his mother. In the previous chapter, we saw his mother Bathsheba coming to him with a request from Adonijah. Adonijah was plotting and scheming. And it said that Solomon bowed to his mother, which is to say that he honored his mother and he was very respectful towards her. Now, he didn't grant the request of his mother. Surely I will not refuse you. But then this wasn't really her request. It was a request she was making on behalf of Adonijah. So he didn't meet her request. He had Adonijah killed, and yet he still honored his mother. In the case of David, the parting instructions before David passed away, Solomon honored those as well. His father had said, these men have either a reward coming because they've been faithful, they should eat at your table, keep them close, or these men have punishment that is overdue and is coming and you need to be the one to make sure that they are punished for their sins, for their crimes. Solomon honored his father by seeing to it that justice was done. But then here, God asks him, what shall I give you? And the setup is Solomon giving full credit to God for the great and steadfast love to David, his father, and also giving honor to his father, not either or. It doesn't mean that David was a perfect man. He wasn't. As a matter of fact, Solomon is the offspring of the union, which is the greatest stain on David's legacy, which is astounding. Perhaps that is also part of why Solomon is humble, why he's overwhelmed and why he wants wisdom. But that's what he asks for. Now, O Yahweh my God, verse 7, you have made your servant king in place of David my father, although I am but a little child. Now, we'll pause right there. How old was Solomon? I didn't see his age listed anywhere. And yet, looking online, I find estimates of between 20 and 25 years of age. So he's not a child, but he still thinks of himself as a kid. So he's not too big for his britches. He's not entitled for one thing, and he's not too big for his britches. If he is 20 to 25 years of age, he still thinks of himself as needing in the maturity department, needing wisdom. This is fantastic. This is a really great way to start off your reign. One, God asking you, what shall I give you? That's exciting. (laughs) Wow. Um, I don't know, God, I, I'm still just taking it all in. I, you know, God, you've been so good to my father, David, and you have given my father a son to rule after him. I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. Now, what is this? I do not know how to go out or come in. I don't know what I'm doing. I need someone to guide me at every step because I don't know what I'm doing. It's like when dogs chase cars, except Solomon wasn't chasing this car by any indication in the text. But it's like when dogs chase cars. 
you have to ask yourself, what would the dog do if the dog ever caught the car? (laughs) Okay, great. The car stopped. I got it. Now what? Solomon says, I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant, verse 8, is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. And so here we see a fulfillment of the prophecy and the promise from God to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that their descendants would be more numerous than the stars in the heavens and the grains of sand on a seashore. Too many to count. Solomon says, we're there. But then he gives full credit to God for that being the case. And so perhaps he's aware, hopefully he's aware, but perhaps he is aware that that was the promise. Perhaps his father taught that to him. Perhaps his mother taught that to him. Perhaps he was assigned good teachers who made sure that he knew that. If he was supposed to be king, if it had been promised that he would be king, perhaps he has been faithful in making a copy of the law of Moses writing it out by hand, having it double-checked for any errors or mistakes so that he really knows God's commands. Do this, don't do that. This will be blessed, that will be cursed. This will be pleasing to the Lord, this will incur judgment. Or perhaps this is an off-the-cuff remark. I think it's the former, not the latter. But in any event, verse 8 Solomon says, your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen. So here is Solomon recognizing humbly. Again, humility is the key virtue here. He identifies himself as the Lord's servant. Great. That's a good start. That's where you should start. He also recognizes that this people is God's people. So they're not first and foremost Solomon's people. They're first and foremost God's people. Also, who chose whom? God chose this people. Also, there's an honoring of the people. So to this point, Solomon has honored God. Solomon has honored his father. Solomon has honored his mother. Solomon is honoring this people and saying they are a great people. He is really impressed. And he says there are too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. And then verse 9, give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind. To govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? If I could paraphrase, I would say, Lord, help me to be up to the task. I'm overwhelmed. I'm in over my head. I don't know what I'm doing. Lord, please help me to be a good steward of what it is that you have blessed me with. In this opportunity, in this position, in this heritage, for who is able to govern your great people? The answer to that question, and it may be a rhetorical question, is first and foremost, God. God is able to govern this, his great people. But also, humanly speaking, who is able to govern this, God's great people? Humanly speaking, the one who has wisdom from the Lord, the one who is blessed by God, the one with whom God is. And verse 10, it says, it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. How happy is that? I mean, that's a short, simple statement, and yet profound, that it pleased God that Solomon had asked this. It pleased the Lord. It pleased Yahweh, the God of Israel, 
that Solomon had asked this. So what's the response? The response is, from God, verse 11, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold. And this word behold, it's a little bit clunky for us. In our day, we don't use the word behold very much, but the equivalent in our vernacular would be look, listen, pay attention, listen up. I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you, which is to say Solomon is the wisest man who ever lived or whoever will have lived by God's grace. The wisdom that Solomon has to do what is right, to know what is right, to say what is true, Solomon's discernment all is from God, who has absolute wisdom. God knows everything. God is righteous and holy and all-wise and all-powerful. Of course, if God gives you wisdom, it's going to be very wise. What it is that God teaches Solomon, or the kind of a mind, which is an interesting thing to think about, the kind of a mind that Solomon has is good at getting to the point and making connections. Based on limited information, understanding the relationship between the facts and the figures and the anecdotes and the personalities involved, the dynamics, so as to make good decisions because that's what this all boils down to is making good decisions. Wisdom is known by her children. So you don't just have wisdom and then do nothing with it. We know who has wisdom because they act wisely. They speak wisely. They give good counsel. And when they make choices, they make good choices. They make wise choices. How do we know that they're wise choices? Because they have good effects. Now, this is not utilitarianism, but there is a utility in being wise. Now, the utilitarians will say, whatever is useful, that is what is wise. And that's putting the cart before the horse. That's confusing causes and effects, which is not particularly wise, particularly if it's godless. The key ingredient here is, is there humility before God? Is there the fear of the Lord? That's the beginning of wisdom. That's the beginning of insight and understanding. If you do not take God into account, or when you do, it's to do the opposite of what God says, just to try and prove that you are self-sufficient, independent. You do what you want. You're smarter than God. You're wiser than God. No, no, you're not wise. You're wise in your own eyes. And there's more hope for a fool than there is for a man who's wise in his own eyes. And I would just venture, that was probably the thing which was the biggest challenge for Solomon once he actually had that wisdom from God at a discerning mind, the hardest thing was maintaining it without becoming wise in his own eyes and being tempted to think too much of himself and get puffed up and forget who it was that had made him wise in the first place. And yet, part of what God gives to Solomon here is what he has not asked for. So in other words, Solomon did not ask all sorts of things for himself. He didn't make a selfish request. He made 
a request that had to do with honoring his father, David, who had gone before him, honoring this people, Israel, because he wants to do a good job. He wants to be a good steward. But then also he made a request that would be pleasing to God. Baking into the request recognition that this has all been brought about by God's sovereign ruling and reigning over the affairs of men intervening for this people, Israel, to bring them to this point in the first place, where there is even an opportunity to put this request before God. Solomon recognizes all of that is because God has initiated. There's no two ways about it. And this pleases God. And he says, I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you walk Now, here's the conditional. If you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. So in other words, Solomon didn't ask for riches and honor, but he's going to get riches and honor. How? In part, because he's wise. (laughs) There will be good effects from making good decisions, but also there's a divine intervention piece here. If God is with Solomon, then there will be good effects. And even when people try to plot and scheme to interrupt the natural consequences of good decision-making, wise counsel, wise judgments from Solomon, God will thwart their plans. They will end up falling into the pit of their own making, falling into their own traps. If you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And that is to say, too, that to the extent that Solomon did not, so also his days were not long. To the extent that he did walk in the statutes and the commandments of God, his days were lengthened. But to the extent that he didn't, his days were shortened. So there is a cause and effect relationship there. But it's not just making good decisions from a practical, utilitarian, material standpoint that God is giving wisdom to Solomon. You want to know wisdom? Wisdom is fear God and keep his commandments. That's the whole duty of man. You want to be wise? Don't make an enemy out of God. Don't be an enemy to God. You want to have a long, full, rich life? Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto you. Verse 15, Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. And that's curious too. It's God who initiates And the God who rules and reigns over the affairs of men absolutely works in dreams several times throughout the biblical text, including here, but not limited to here. God works in dreams. Why does God work in dreams sometimes and other times in the waking world? I don't know. Quite simply, I don't know. It's one of the mysteries that I would love to understand better, but I'll speculate. I don't know. But I'll speculate that part of the reason for God speaking with Solomon in a dream is because there's so much hustle and bustle. Who do you trust? Who can be close by, listening in, who won't twist what God is saying like Satan? I think of it perhaps like encrypted email or encrypted messaging apps. Signal, for instance, is what I like to use. I keep in touch with my wife and a number of family and friends over Signal. It's 
very private, very secure, encrypted end-to-end so that the transmissions and the receipts are not being read by somebody else. I don't want my mail, my casual conversation being read by third parties, whether they're hackers or corporations or activists or bureaucrats. I don't want strangers reading the intimate conversations that I have with people. I don't want other people reading my mail. And so it's end-to-end encrypted. This is a conversation between person A and person B, and you can just see your way out of it, all you eavesdroppers. And maybe that's why, right? That's the best explanation I can think of why God speaks at various times in dreams is it's essentially end-to-end encryption. Satan can't peek into that dream. Corrupt men can't peek into that dream. This is for your eyes only, like the great spy novels and spy movies based on spy novels. This message will self-destruct in 30 seconds or 15 seconds or 10 seconds. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is fill in the blank. And now you know, and now there's no trace that we had this conversation, except in your memory and remember it well. But it says in verse 15, Solomon awoke and behold, it was a dream. Then he came to Jerusalem and stood before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants. What's this about? It seems to me Solomon is throwing a party and celebrating, and he is very glad to have had this dream, to have had this conversation with the Lord, and to have been told this request pleases God, and yes, it will be granted, and more besides. He's very pleased, and he takes the initiative, and he doesn't just internally celebrate. What may have been a private conversation between Solomon and God is no longer private just by the fact that we're reading about it in the text, for instance, for example. But then also, too, there's this feast for all his servants, almost like Solomon has a new lease on life. If he was overwhelmed before, if he was feeling in over his head, if he was feeling like, I am just a child, I am not ready for this. Now he believes and doesn't doubt that God has spoken to him and God will bless and establish his reign in wisdom and in justice. But then we get an anecdote. We get an example so that this is not just known to Solomon. We get a practical demonstration and an example. I'm sure this is not an exhaustive example, like this is the only time something like this happened, but it's a good representative sample of the sort of wisdom put into practice in a specific case in the case of the two prostitutes. From verse 16 to verse 28, we have two prostitutes coming before the king, each claiming that the other woman's child died and this living child is their child. The story, as it's told, the setup for it, is that the woman whose son died was so out of it, perhaps she had been drinking or perhaps she was on drugs, she was so out of it that she laid on her own child and smothered the child, and the child died. And rather than her accepting the loss, for whatever reason, it entered into her mind to take the other woman's child 
and put her dead child with the woman whose child was alive. That's the claim. That's the story that's being told to Solomon. If true, how do you verify? (laughs) How do you, in this day and age, when this is real time, how do you verify these competing claims? To my knowledge, there were no DNA tests where you could just run the sequence and see who's the mother, who's got the most genetic similarity, and establish it that way. How do you figure it out? If one woman is lying and the other woman is telling the truth, do you flip a coin? Do you cast lots? What do you do? I mean, if they're both telling mutually exclusive, contradictory stories, they can't both be telling the truth. One of them is lying, at least. Then if you pick the wrong woman to give the child to, you have just become a party to this injustice. You've just cemented it in. And if you're lazy or you're self-indulgent or uncareful, you may just say, I don't have time for this. I don't care. Well, then you're not doing justice. You're the king. They come to you because they're expecting justice. That's your job is to reward those who do what is good and punish those who do what is evil. The woman whose baby is alive has done what is good. The one who smothered her child in the night, laying on her own son so that he died and then stealing the other woman's child. She's done what is evil and she deserves to be punished. She certainly doesn't deserve to be rewarded at a minimum. And that poor child, you don't want this baby boy being raised by a woman who killed her own child because for one, she might do it again. If she's not a good mother, She might just lay on this child too. If she's the kind of character who lies and trades her dead baby for somebody else's live baby, kidnapping, stealing, slandering the other woman, oh no, you're the liar. Well, then you definitely, if she doesn't smother the child physically, you definitely don't want her instilling her character traits or her abusive tendencies, her very selfish tendencies in this baby boy I mean, they're both prostitutes, sure, but there are worse things than just being a prostitute, all other things being equal, than both being prostitutes. The prostitute who is going to take care of her child instead of smothering her child in her sleep is a better prostitute. She's a better woman. I'll put it that way. She would be a better mother, and this child needs to be raised by somebody. And so what is Solomon to do? You know, what's interesting is A lot of the things that we would reach for in our day, DNA tests, not available. Perhaps looking over the physical characteristics, that could have been another option. Uh, Who does the child look more like? And maybe Solomon did that, but it's not in the text. So let's not assume that he did that. Uh, I think he has more of your eyes. Okay, you get to raise him. Uh, But those eyes might be from the father. How do you know? What does Solomon do? He says, the one says, verse 23, This is my son that is alive, and your son is dead. And the other says, no, but your son is dead, and my son is the living one. It's almost, as I imagine it, like Solomon puts on a dramatic performance. Like the show Lie to Me, which was a great show. It ended too soon. Starring Tim Roth as this psychologist who specializes in reading facial expressions and nonverbal communication to determine on behalf of law enforcement and intelligence agencies, who 
is lying, called in for questioning and interrogation, is this person telling the truth? Yeah, maybe they can fake a polygraph out. Time is of the essence. We can't figure out whether this guy's telling us the truth, that he really doesn't know anything, or it's this other thing that hasn't checked out so far, or what, right? We need somebody. And this Tim Roth in the show Lie to Me, he watches for very subtle micro expressions, as they're called, little tells, like in poker, when somebody's bluffing, they routinely will make a certain touch of the face, wrinkle of the nose, slight raising of an eyebrow, a shrugging of the shoulders. Tells are giveaways when you're trying to be deceptive. And so he knows how to ask the right kinds of questions to draw somebody out and throw them off balance so that they get to the bottom of whatever the case is that they're trying to solve, whatever the plot is that they're trying to foil before it can be completed, some dastardly deed, some terrorist attack, some what have you. But I imagine Solomon, in this case, putting on a little bit of dramatics, a little bit of theatrics, as he says, the one says, this is my son that is alive and your son is dead. The other says, no, but your son is dead and my son is the living one. I think he's just casually walking around the space. If this is inside in a throne room, I think he's just kind of walking around them, not looking at them, talking to himself out loud for them to hear, casually feigning confusion, indifference. And then he says, verse 24, bring me a sword. And if you're the one woman who lied, maybe you're worried, right? Maybe you're worried that the bringing of this sword is he figured it out. I gave it away. Oh, shoot. I'm about to be killed for my crime. If you're the innocent woman, you might be worried too, right? If you're the woman who's telling the truth, you might be worried that he's going to guess wrong. He's going to think that the other woman is believable. She's a really good liar. She's so audacious. What's he going to do with the sword? Am I about to be killed because he thinks I'm lying? What is Solomon doing calling for a sword? Well, a quick thought on that is Romans 13. When Paul is writing about the civil authority, and Solomon here is the civil authority, the preeminent presiding civil magistrate in Israel as king, he is there to judge, to deliver justice in cases like this. Perhaps lower courts, lower judges had been unable to make heads or tails, and so it escalated. Maybe it was similar to how in the United States, a court case can start out at the local level or at the state level, and an appeal is made when the ruling is unsatisfactory, and you just keep going up and up and up until you get to the Supreme Court of the United States, if they'll hear the case. That seems more likely. Like, not everybody just gets to go directly to the king, but maybe, right? Maybe they were able to go directly. But Paul writes that the governing authority is a minister of God. No authority is established among men except by God, and the authorities that exist have been instituted by God to reward those who do what is good and to punish those who do what is evil. And the civil magistrate, if you do what is good, you'll be praised, you'll be rewarded, you'll be thanked. If you do what is evil, 
Beware, he does not bear the sword for nothing. He bears the sword to punish you, ultimately with death, if your crime deserves death. When Solomon calls for a sword, in case it's not clear, he is indicating that he bears the sword for something. Or the sword is to be born for something. It is to be born decisively when he is ruling, when he is judging. But then he says a very disturbing thing, a very alarming thing, probably a shocking thing. Verse 25, divide the living child in two and give half to the one and half to the other. What's this about, right? Is this Solomon being a crazy person? Is he crazy? We should never have come. Maybe he's trying to clear his schedule. You know, there was a joke here that an uncle of mine made about being called in and called up for jury duty several times in one year and how he was not particularly appreciating and enjoying how many times he'd been called back for jury duty. It's like, surely there are other people. Surely other people in the county can be selected. But he made a joke about how he should just show up with a noose when the selection process is underway. He should just show up and say, all right, I'm ready. And that would be a quick way to get kicked out by one or the other of the attorneys or both. Uh, no, no, thank you. At maybe Solomon here is trying to clear his schedule. If word gets around that, man, you'd better really, really need the king's justice because you go in there with a frivolous thing that's beneath him. He's a wild card. Who knows? Who knows what he might do? But Solomon says, divide the living child in two and give half to the one and half to the other. There you go. That's fair. Rather than me give the child possibly to the woman who is not the mother, I've got an idea. We'll make it fair. So this is like socialism, right? It's not fair that some women have living children and other women don't have any children at all, whether because they're infertile or they have a barren womb or because their children died. It's not fair that some women have more children than others. The government should step in to redistribute all the children. There is no such thing as someone else's children. Yeah. yeah. So what? So what if the child dies? It'll be even, right? You both get half of a dead baby because one of you is not going to be content. Neither of you are going to be content if the other woman gets the baby. I don't want to make one of you happier and one of you unhappier and possibly make the wrong call. Let's just cut the baby in half. Easy, simple. Verse 26, then the woman whose son was alive said to the king, because her heart yearned for her son, oh my Lord, give her the living child and by no means put him to death. But the other said, he shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. Wow. If that doesn't just perfectly sum up socialists, this woman, the other woman saying, he shall be neither mine nor yours, divide him. She is articulating the attitude and the posture of the radical left in our day, but it's a trap, right? Here's the kind of wisdom that God gives to Solomon. This is all a setup. It's a ruse. This was to draw the character of these two women out to see what they're made of, to see what sort of women they are. This was a test, and one woman passed with flying colors, and the other woman has failed and has just 
revealed herself to be exactly the sort of person who would steal the other woman's baby after smothering her own in the night. So what does Solomon say? Not, okay, great, I'm glad we figured that out, but I don't like to pick sides. So yeah, carry on. You came for the king's justice, didn't you? You came for my ruling. How dare you undermine me by saying, no, 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 no. Give her the living child. No, I've spoken. This is what it is. Hush you. No, 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 no. What Solomon says in verse 27 is give the living child to the first woman and by no means put him to death. She is his mother. What is that about? She has just demonstrated that she's the sort of character who would actually take good care of her child. She's the kind of woman who would not smother her child in the middle of the night because she had too much to drink or she was all hopped up on drugs and totally out of it, totally indifferent, totally cold to caring for this baby boy. The woman who would rather the other woman raise the child alive and in the process would surrender her claim, surrender her parental rights, her maternal rights. That woman has maternal instinct. This child's mother is the one who puts the child before herself. And so what Solomon says is, all right, now I know. Now I know what really happened here because I know the character of these two women in question. Now I know who to believe and who I don't believe. And even if she were telling the truth, which I don't believe that she is, now I know who should be raising this child and who shouldn't. Now, a thought or two about this. It says, verse 28, all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. This is not a common, typical, turn over every rock and you'll find this sort of thinking, this sort of reasoning, this sort of deducing and sleuthing and coming to the right conclusions. No, this is special. This is even among God's people at this time, this is noteworthy. It's so noteworthy that all Israel is talking about this. They are awestruck because it's brilliant and it's good. You want to know what sort of a man Solomon is? He's the sort of a man who's going to get to the bottom of it and is going to deliver justice. Your heart sinks to think of the wrong woman stealing the other woman's child and perhaps some harm coming to this child as a result, but definitely harm coming to the innocent woman whose child was taken from her. Your heart sinks. You just get this pit in your stomach like, oh, that's the worst. That's horrible. And then there's a resolution. And it's without inflicting any injury on an innocent party determined, not just because Solomon is wise, but because he has the wisdom of God to do justice, not the wisdom of God to know trivia. No, no, that's perhaps being knowledgeable, but how do you get relevant knowledge to the decision that needs to be made? Solomon got it from God and all Israel knows it now. And this is a sea change. Like this is a major blessing for the people of Israel that even they would just know, right? This is a deterrent from fraudsters coming with perhaps frivolous complaints and charges and lawsuits against innocent people coming before the king. This is a deterrent 
from wasting the king's time. If he's very perceptive, don't even start. I'm going to see right through you. That's what they're thinking to themselves. And so everybody benefits because those kinds of cases are not going to be brought. Also, righteous cases will be heard and ruled on wisely. Justice will be done to relieve innocent parties, those who have been oppressed, those who've been defrauded, those who've been slandered, those who've been damaged in some way, those who've been stolen from. The king will hear the case. He will get to the bottom of it. If you are guilty, he will not hold you guiltless. He will know. The wisdom of God being in him, you will not pull one over on God, and so therefore you will not pull one over on Solomon. And so then that also is extraordinarily confidence-building, and the economic prosperity that comes as a result is based on the speed of trust. One, because you trust that justice will be served if some wrong is perpetrated. And so you don't have to be so divided in your attention between taking advantage of opportunities, investing your time and attention and energy in something profitable, a trade or commerce or industry, because the deterrent there is not having to be provided by yours truly. The deterrent is there provided by the governing authority. When the governing authority stops doing justice, when justice is perverted and magistrates take bribes, absolving the guilty, condemning the innocent, rewarding the evildoer, punishing those who do what is good, the economy suffers. Why? Because everybody starts turtling. Everybody starts sucking it in to try and protect themselves from loss. Loss of what kind? Loss of the kind that's related to theft, fraud, slander. This is a huge blessing, and it must be a huge relief to the people of Israel. But again, it's not utilitarian in the sense of we put the cart before the horse and we just say whatever is useful, that is what's wise. No, no, you say what's truly wise will be beneficial holistically. And so it is here. This is a fascinating example of justice being served in the Old Testament right after God having told Solomon, I will give you what you have asked for. It pleases me. I will give you what you've asked for. I will also give you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. This anecdote is to give you an example of what this looked like in practical terms. But it comes from God, and all Israel is talking about it. And so God is getting glory, which is also a huge blessing. That's a huge benefit to the people of Israel, that God gets glory. To the extent that God is getting glory, and the people are honoring him, not just in word, but in deed, Israel will be blessed. That was what God promised, and that's what God consistently always forever has done and did. Now, that said, and much more could be said, but we don't need to kill the lily. There's plenty enough to meditate on. For the sake of time in this episode, because I really do have to be somewhere this morning, I am going to talk next about the number seven, <laughs> because I want to talk about everything. And when would be a better time than episode 777 to talk about the number seven? Turning to Wikipedia, <clears throat> seven is the natural number following six and preceding eight. And oh, by the way, why was six afraid of seven? 
because seven, eight, nine. Seven is the only prime number preceding a cube. As an early prime number in the series of positive integers, the number seven has greatly, oh, that's a typo, great symbolic associations in religion. It says greatly. Don't believe everything you hear on the internet or read on the internet. That's what Abraham Lincoln said. I think I read that on the internet. Um, The number seven has great symbolic associations in religion, mythology, superstition, and philosophy. The seven classical planets resulted in seven being the number of days in a week. So they say, I think it's because God created everything, the heavens and the earth and everything in them in six days and rested on the seventh. I think that's actually really what it is. So again, don't believe everything you read on the internet. Seven is often considered lucky in Western culture and is often seen as highly symbolic. Unlike Western culture, in Vietnamese culture, the number seven is sometimes considered unlucky. Yeah, well, I suppose if I put any stock in that, I would be concerned, but I I don't. So I'm not going to put any stock in that. I'm not concerned. Uh, In science, there are seven colors in a rainbow, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, and violet. There are seven continents, seven seas, seven climates. The neutral pH balance is seven. Number of music notes in a scale, seven. Number of spots most commonly found on ladybugs. That's curious. Why? I don't know. Seven is the atomic number for nitrogen. Fun fact. Seven is the number of diatomic elements. Seven basic crystal systems. In psychology, seven plus or minus two is a model of working memory. There are seven psychological types called the seven rays in the teachings of Alice A. Bailey. I don't know who that is. I don't know what that is. We'll move on. In Western culture, seven is consistently listed as people's favorite number. That's interesting. When guessing numbers one to 10, the number seven is most likely to be picked, probably among Westerners, maybe because it's their favorite number. The seven-year itch is when happiness in marriage is said to decline after seven years. In classical antiquity, the Pythagoreans invested particular numbers with unique spiritual properties. The number seven was considered to be particularly interesting because it consisted of the union of the physical number four with the spiritual number three. In Pythagorean numerology, the number seven means spirituality. References from classical antiquity to the number seven include seven classical planets and the derivative seven heavens. Seven wonders of the ancient world, seven metals of antiquity, seven days in the week, seven seas, seven sages, seven champions that fought Thebes, seven hills of Rome, and seven kings of Rome, seven sisters, the daughters of Atlas, also known as the Pleiades. In Judaism, the number seven forms a widespread typological pattern within Hebrew scripture, including seven days, more precisely Yom, of creation, leading to the seventh day or Sabbath, Genesis 1. Sevenfold vengeance visited on Cain for the killing of Abel, Genesis 4.15. Seven pairs of every clean animal loaded onto the ark by Noah, Genesis 7.2. Seven years of plenty and seven years of famine in Pharaoh's dream, Genesis 41. Speaking of dreams, the seventh son of Jacob, Gad, whose name means good luck, Genesis 46.16. Seven times bullock's blood is sprinkled before God, Leviticus 4.6. Seven nations God told the Israelites they would displace when they entered the land of Israel, Deuteronomy 7.1. Seven days, de jour, but de facto eight days of the Passover feast, Exodus 13, 3 to 10. Seven branched candelabrum or menorah, Exodus 25. 
Seven trumpets played by seven priests for seven days to bring down the walls of Jericho, Joshua 6, 8. Seven things that are detestable to God, Proverbs 6, 16 to 19. Seven pillars of the house of wisdom, Proverbs 9, 1. Seven archangels in the Deuterocanonical book of Tobit. References to the number seven in Jewish knowledge and practice include seven divisions of the weekly readings are Aliyah. I don't know if I said that right. Of the Torah. Seven Jewish men over the age of 13 called to read Aliyah's. In Shabbat morning services, seven blessings recited under the chuppah during a Jewish wedding ceremony, seven days of festive meals for a Jewish bride and groom after their wedding, known as Shiva Berachot, or seven blessings, seven Ushpizin prayers to the Jewish patriarchs during the holiday of Sukkot. In Christianity, following the tradition of the Hebrew Bible, the New Testament likewise uses the number seven as part of a typological pattern. Seven loaves multiplied into seven baskets full of surplus, Matthew 15, 32 to 37. Seven demons were driven out of Mary Magdalene, Luke 8, 2. Seven last sayings of Jesus on the cross. Seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, Acts 6, 3. Seven spirits of God, seven churches, and seven seals in the book of Revelation. References to the number seven in Christian knowledge and practice include seven gifts of the Holy Spirit, seven corporal acts of mercy, and seven spiritual acts of mercy, seven deadly sins, lust, gluttony, greed, sloth, wrath, envy, and pride, and seven terraces of Mount Purgatory. That is for the Catholics out there. Seven virtues, chastity, temperance, charity, diligence, kindness, patience, and humility, seven joys and seven sorrows of the Virgin Mary, seven sleepers of Christian myth, seven sacraments in the Catholic Church, though some traditions assign a different number. All of that is to say that there are a lot of reasons for Westerners to regard seven as a favorite number. It's not just Westerners who really like the number seven, but in scripture, we see the number seven show up quite a lot. And it is curious. I've heard it said before that seven is the number of completion, whether that is all there is to it. Seven if it's the number of completion, is also a good number for peace. Because what is peace? Peace is wholeness. Peace is being of one mind. Instead of being double-minded and distracted and divided in your attention, seven also is a good number to symbolize wisdom. Because you're understanding the relationship of the parts to the whole. As in, the parts belong to a unified whole because God is a God of order. Whether we should put too much stock in specific numbers, the scriptures seem to assign special significance to certain numbers, and that is very interesting. And there's a mystery to that that I don't comprehend, but I am intrigued by. And again, I thought, with this being episode 777, the thought occurs to me, why is 777 jackpot, right? Why not any three numbers other than seven? Why 777? Why not 111? Snake eyes. You know, why not 222? Right? Why not any other set of three numbers to be a jackpot? And perhaps it's because 777 is much better than 666, which is popularly thought of as the mark of the beast. In end times prophecy, you have the Antichrist, you have the beast, you have Satan making war on the saints for how long? And the number of the mark of the beast that everybody is required to get stamped on themselves, marked on themselves, if they want to buy, sell, or trade 
if they want to be at peace with the Antichrist, the spirit of Antichrist, this one world government, ultimately with Satan at the helm, his chosen instruments at the helm, that number being 666, it's almost as if that symbolizes six days of work followed by six days of work followed by six days of work, like you've corrupted the natural rhythm established by God from creation of six days working and then a day of rest. What restores the proper order? Seven, seven, and seven. Six days of work, one day of rest. Six days of work, one day of rest. Six days of work, one day of rest. Seven day weeks, perhaps, possibly, after a fashion, even just metaphorically. The mindset that goes into, I just have to work all the time, all day long, every day. I never pause when God tells me to pause. I never rest. I'm never still when God tells me to be still and know that he is God. That mindset is godless, and it also leads to a bad end. Not just practically, again, with the utilitarianism needing to not put carts before horses, but there is a benefit, there is a blessing to being able to rest. He gives to his beloved sleep. Unless the Lord builds a house, its laborers labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. That very well sums up where we find ourselves in our day, where people for thousands of years all over the world have found themselves. If you want peace, if you want to be whole, you have to humble yourself before the Lord. And if you will, it says in the scriptures, God gives grace to the humble but he opposes the proud. So don't be proud. Don't think that you do this in your strength, in your wisdom. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Humble yourself before the Lord and being willing to admit that you're not particularly wise. That's the first step to actually asking for wisdom of those who have wisdom or the one who has wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, but let him believe and not doubt, James says. Seven is as good a number as any to say is significant as it comes up again and again. And there are all of these scriptural, biblical references that can come to mind. I think that's significant that we would remember God, remember God's works and his promises, his purposes, the character of which is unchangeable, not just that it doesn't change, but it's unchangeable because his character is unchangeable. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that my friends, is the root of wisdom. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. As I said, I really do have to be somewhere this morning. And I'll say a quick word about that before we adjourn. It's been a year since the first Twilight Imperium game that I played with my oldest son, Josiah, and our friends, the Pavliks, Paul, Jonah, and Jude, and also Taylor Cross. This morning, one year later, to celebrate, I'm going to play another Twilight Imperium game. Now, this time, unfortunately, my oldest son, Josiah, cannot make it. He is on his way to a wrestling tournament in Ray, and I'm very excited for him. I wish we could all go, but it just doesn't work out that way today. He will be missed. He will do well, but he will be missed. And instead of Josiah, it'll be my second oldest son, Elihu, sitting not right next to me, actually, the way the table is going to be set up, the way the map is set up, it'll be 
my friend Paul Pavlik sitting on my left side, his second oldest son, Jude, sitting on my right side, then Eli, then our friend Rourke did like, and then I believe, if memory serves, his father, Aaron Didlake, is sitting to his right, or maybe it's Taylor Cross, and then Aaron Didlake. But then after Aaron and Taylor, it'll be Jonah, and then back to Paul again on his right. It's going to be a long game, eight players. That's a full map. That's a full game. It's going to be a lot of fun, but that is to say too, I got to run. I'll let you know how it goes in our next episode, which will be subscriber only. So you should definitely subscribe so you don't have to wait until January to listen to that, to the recap of the Twilight Imperium game today. For now, I'll leave you with this thought. It pleased God that Solomon asked for wisdom, for a discerning mind to be a good steward of the position God had put Solomon in, the authority that had been invested in him. We should take that to heart. We should meditate on that. We should ask God for wisdom as well and believe and not doubt that God himself gives generously to all without finding fault. Ask and it will be given. It's a good ask and we need it. But as always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.